Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Uh, this past week, I- I've had the privilege of sitting across the table from quite a few of you, and I'm always curious of the different themes that arise in every single one of my interactions through a week. Uh, and the theme this week seemed to be that of embracing our amateur status in life, of finding the joy in the words of so many saints who have gone before us, whether it was Benedict and his rule, of Julian, of Teresa, that phrase, always we begin again. And so with that, I thought it would be helpful for my soul and for yours to begin each sermon over the coming few weeks with this, to say, I am a beginner. I assume you're a beginner too. And so let's begin together. Is that okay? Yeah. Well, as far as uh, parables go, <laughs> this one is probably the least familiar to most of us. It's probably not the one, if you've ever put a child to bed, the one you lead with. If you come upon a great chasm, look behind you and to your side and hope Abraham is there, right? It's one of the least familiar, and so just a few words of introduction to this parable of Jesus. First of all, it is not familiar to us, but it is a very familiar story to his listeners, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright points out that, quote, it is very like a well-known folk tale in the ancient world. Jesus was by no means the first to tell how the wealthy, uh, how wealth and poverty might be reversed in the future life, unquote. So it's a common story to his listeners. The second thing I would say by way of introduction is that this parable is not, it is not, in any way describing the afterlife. I have sat in classes and sermons and put down books that go, here's how we know what life after death and what life after life after death looks like. To which I would say as, well, baloney. The third thing I would say is that this parable is not primarily a moral moral tale about riches and poverty. So what is this parable about? Because it seems like from the initial reading, it is about those things, right? And I think the clues of what Jesus is trying to do here in the story he tells comes in what comes before. And so I think there's an invitation to work our way back upstream a little bit. If we begin to work our way and wade our way upstream in Luke's gospel, immediately upstream, uh, we see this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Luke tells us in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money. And they ridiculed Jesus for what he had said about people not being able to serve two masters, God and money. And again, it's like, well, didn't you just say that this is not primarily a moral tale about riches and poverty? And it's not, because if it were a moral tale, 
then what we do with it is simply, okay, don't be rich, be poor. That can't be right. Because Jesus is primarily concerned with the kind of person you're becoming, not what you're doing. They did not like the kind of life Jesus was offering. It did not fit in with what Father Thomas Keating calls our happiness projects. The things in our life that we look to, that we grasp to, to give us this deep sense of happiness that we were created for. Because the Pharisees, and we tend to give them a hard time, they can be, maybe just for me, a little bit of a punching bag of my own anxiety and fears. I don't think Jesus viewed them that way because Jesus was incredibly patient with them. He told them a lot of stories, not as a way to dismiss them, but I think as a way to welcome them. They would not consent to that welcoming, but he welcomed them nonetheless. But like us, they were longing for Eden. They were longing for Eden. And when they could not find it easily, they decided that they would make it themselves. Rabbi Abraham Herschel is quoted as saying, you can describe the whole Old Testament in one word. Remember. Everybody say remember. Remember. They did not remember who God was. They did not remember who they were. They did not remember that God is boundless mystery. And they did not remember God as hospitable one, especially to the outsider. They did not remember God as present and active. They did not remember themselves as beloved image bearers. They did not remember the good news in the words of places like Isaiah 43. Can I, can I read this for us? That be okay? Listen to these words. Maybe you have been blessed enough to never have anyone tell you that the New Testament stands in opposition to the old. But there is a lot in the Old Testament (laughs) that reveals to us that what we see in Jesus has actually been in the heart of history since the very beginning. Listen, if you will, to these words. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have set you free. I have called you by name, and you, are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overshadow you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in exchange for you because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. 
I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my son far, from far away and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for the weighty majesty that is my glory, whom I formed and made. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, that one's not a question, is it? They had forgotten. I don't know as you heard that read, the response even in my soul, and I wrote it down and was planning on it, but even fresh again was like, oh. Mm. Mm. Ah. Eden. work our way a little bit farther upstream, we come to the parable of the dishonest manager when Jesus, through a story, confronts them about their wrongdoing and yet they don't respond. He gives them a story that they have forgotten who they are. Even a little bit further upstream, we come to Luke 15 and the parable of the prodigal sons. You've heard it as the parable of the prodigal son, but there's actually two prodigals. Both sons are outside of the home when we meet them afterwards. In fact, Jesus is going to connect these two stories. In Luke 16, he says, Neither will they be convinced even if someone were to rise from the dead. And in the story of the prodigal in Luke 15, Jesus says, This your brother was dead and is alive again. And here we get a true glimpse of the source. Luke 15, in many ways, is the gospel within the gospel. You have two wandering and wandering sons that have left. The first spoils everything that he has been given. The father in the story who Jesus intends to be an image and to be an echo of our heavenly father has, in his wisdom, allowed his children to wander. He's given space for both children to wander. And in that space, though, he longs for both of them to come home. There's a great mystery to this. He lets them go and wants them to be nowhere else but with him. Luke tells us, Jesus describing this story says that the father, while the son was still a long way off, saw him. That his heart is filled with compassion. I heard Trevor Hudson this past week, who is a Methodist pastor from South Africa, say, friends, when your heart is full of compassion, it cannot be full of anything else. The Father's heart is full of compassion. That is all that resides there. And he runs, and he embraces, and he kisses. He restores dignity, and he restores a name. For what had been taken had actually already been given. Your kingdom come <laughs> on earth as it is in heaven. This is the gospel within the gospel. The good news that the kingdom of God is available, radically available. 
the good news that the kingdom of God, which we must ask ourselves, what God? Who is this God? The good news that the kingdom of God, the God who is Christ-like and in whom there is no unchrist-likeness at all. That that God has made available another kind of life. This past week, um, I was in attendance too. I signed up for uh, a two-year program called the Renovare Institute. We had our first residency in Atlanta this past week. And as we were ending, uh, Carolyn, who's the director of the institute, said, Beloved, go now. Repaint your images of God. And then we left. And that word repainting is loaded with so much. You walk into a room and go, we need to repaint it. Do you mean the same color? Do you mean a different color? Do you mean a blend of the both? And I love this. I love this image of repainting our images of God because for many of us, we have been given, we've been handed, we believe in a God who is unchristlike. And yet we have a God, as Jesus himself says, who is Christ-like, and in him there is no unchristlikeness. Which means we go into the Old Testament with Jesus. In the old rabbinic tradition and in the tradition of even the early church, that any passage, even within the Old Testament, that is unbecoming of a Christ-like God, we continue to sit with and move through. The gospel within the gospel is that the good news, the kingdom of God who is Christ-like and in him, in whom there is no unchristlikeness at all, has made available his kingdom. Uh, the kingdom of God is something that comes up a lot in the synoptic gospels, but in John's gospel, you don't get the kingdom a lot because for John, the way John describes it is life. The theme of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the kingdom, and John carries with him that theme, but it is the theme of life. Life. A shared life with the Holy Trinity and with the Holy Trinity's friends. Because, as many of us have discovered, when Jesus comes, he rarely comes alone. He always brings his friends. what our tradition has referred to as union and communion, the shalom of Eden. In fact, Jesus' incarnating of this good news is what will draw some of the greatest criticism. One of the constant criticisms we hear leveled against Jesus in these chapters is the hospitality he shows to those labeled as outcasts and sinners. But Jesus' goal wasn't just so that people would feel welcome. No, let's invite them to the dinner party because we want them to feel welcome. No, let's, let's, let's offer them healing and prayer because we want them to feel welcome. I think that was the fruit of Jesus' greater desire. People naturally felt welcome 
because it was a result of the fruit, it was the fruit of what his actual deep longing was, which was to help these people know that they were the beloved of God. He longed for people to know as he knew in his bones that he was the beloved of God, that they were the beloved of God. To welcome others like me and like you into his relationship with Abba. This is why he touches the leper. This is why he calls Zacchaeus. Why he puts himself between the accusers and the woman accused of adultery. Beloved, you have been welcomed in. Beloved, you have been given a name. Beloved, you have a dignity only given by God that I can neither give nor take away. Would it be okay for me just to hold this theme for a moment? Paul says in Galatians 4, you are children of God and because of that, God has sent the spirit of the son into your hearts that your hearts might cry, Abba, Father. The spirit of his son, Jesus, here and now sent, not into our minds, not into our heads, but into the very depths Paul describes as the innermost being, the caverns of our soul. They might become pools of light. John will write this in 1 John 3. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. That is what we are. That is what you are. That is what you are. That is what you are. You and I have a fundamental identity, the beloved of God that goes beyond biology, race, gender, personality, political party, and vocation. God created you, formed you, and called you by name and is with you and only knows you as precious and honored. It is the God who carries away the poor man, who comforts the poor man, into which we read welcome, healing and restoration, and shalom. I think what I'm attempting to gently say to us this morning is that this parable is not a, is, is, excuse me, this parable is not about a different kind of afterlife. It is a parable about a different kind of life here and now.
This is the good news to which Jesus will say, repent and believe. Repentance, not in the sense of Dobby and Harry Potter beating his head against the floor or the nearest hard object that he can find. But rather repentance. I love the image that Dallas Willard gives. He says, it's as if you are walking along a hallway And suddenly you hear noise from the right and you turn and see a vast room that is a banquet room with a banquet table with a feast like you have never seen. And there is seated God and all of God's friends. And God bids you come, sit, and eat. That's repentance. That's repentance. The three most important questions in all of scripture are this. Where are you? What do you want? And will you please come home? Will you please come home? Where are you? What do you want? Will you please, please come home? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.